I want to pause just a minute and underscore a couple of things. One is the uh, safety and security training for our children's ministry coming up the first Saturday in March. Uh, Brother Kevin has already emphasized that, underscored it. You've heard about it. We are so privileged and delighted to be hosting that for our whole association of Baptist churches. Many will be here. Uh, this is an excellent opportunity to be brought up today to learn more about safety and security for our children in our churches. I'm delighted at what we've done already, the strides we've made, uh, our, how safety conscious we are with our safety and security team, with our check-in system, with uh, your hard work as teachers and leaders in the classrooms and children's ministries. Thank you for that. But we can always learn a little bit more. So you are all invited to be there and to participate in it. The other thing I just want to pause and mention, is I'd just like to remind you of this now and then, Throughout the building uh, are these little cards that say on the front, the best news, and they have at the bottom our logo. Uh, these, these have the gospel on the back. So I, I encourage you in a couple of ways to have these in your vehicle, to keep them in your purse, uh, in your shirt pocket, keep one there. Whenever you're out to eat, leave it with the tip, not in place of the tip, but with the tip. Uh, you can also use it if you, if you have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. It's right there. It's right there. Take as many as you will give away or that you feel led to use. Take them to your place of business. Take them to someone else's place of business. Uh, leave them in the coffee shop. Whatever the Lord leads you to do, you give them out, we'll make more. That's what they're for. And they are also a part of the Who's Your One wall in our education wing. Go by there. Attached to that wall, someone you're praying for, someone that God's put on your heart to have a gospel conversation. You can just put them on there by their initials, by their first name if you prefer, and you'll see what I mean when you go over there. there. There's an easy way to attach them to that wall, and that's a reminder for all of us to pray for the people whose names are there. Pray for their hearts and pray for each of us to have an opportunity uh, to have a gospel conversation, that God would open up that door. Now, when you do that, let me remind you also to anticipate what God will do. If you pray for God to do something, expect God to do that and to make you part of the answer. That's usually the big surprise for Christians, isn't it? Uh, we're, we're always praying for God to do something and we're totally caught off guard when he does it and then he makes us part of the answer to the prayer. But when you're praying for someone, uh, for their heart to be soft toward the gospel, for them to come to church with you, for them to come to men's ministry, ladies' ministry, uh, cars and coffee, whatever you're praying, if you're praying for them to participate, expect God to do that and involve yourself in that opportunity and engaging in that conversation. So I want to bring up those two things. This morning we continue in a series we started last week where we are looking at the, the events in the Middle East, the war going on right now, the relationship between Israel uh, and later on Islam, but Israel and uh, those of Arab descent. We're looking at all that in a biblical context. That's the purpose of this series. The purpose of the series is not to answer all of our questions uh, about geopolitical problems. The purpose of the series is to get back to the Bible so you and I can see this in biblical context and, and underscore, as we said last week, this is the, this is the main point of the whole series, uh, that God works through history to bring about his purposes. God is not asleep at the wheel. It doesn't mean that everything that happens is good, but it means that God is always good and he is always shepherding history in the direction he intends for history to go. And the events at hand, whatever they might be, are part of that history. 
and God is always in control. So it's important to put that in context. And let me give you an example uh, of why it's important to put things in context to understand what's happening. Uh, you may have heard after, after October 7, uh, many in Israel and the Israeli government said that October 7 was their 9-11. You remember hearing that? And you may wonder, what, what did they mean by that? So it's important to understand that statement in context. And here's, here's how I, wanna, I want us to see that and what they mean by that. It's a proportional statement. It's a matter of percentages and perspective, meaning that the population of Israel is much, much smaller than the population of the United States, and yet the impact is significantly more than what our impact was in 9-11. Uh, for example, General David Petraeus said this. He put it this way. He said, if I could help you understand this, it'd be like this. Uh, we lost about 3,000 people in the 9-11 attacks. 2001, 9-11, about 3,000 Americans died from that terrorist attack that day. To have a comparable uh, amount, to have a, 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 an accurate comparison to what happened October 7th in Israel, the comparison would have been, rather than us losing 3,000, we would have lost 41,000 people or more. That, that's the comparison. So let me put it a little closer to home for us. The comparison with what happened October 7, if it were to come home to us, would be that terrorists attacked and wiped out the, the city, the population of Myrtle Beach. That brings it home, doesn't it? Context is very important. Understanding is very important for context and uh, especially for believers, we need that biblical context. Christianity Today magazine recently did a study of Americans across the board, uh, not long after October 7, they did this study, and, and they found that, thankfully, 83% uh, of American Christians support Israel in this conflict. They understand the conflict and they support Israel in this conflict. That's good news. The other news that came out of the study, however, was that of that 83% of evangelical Christians in America that support Israel, 44% get their information from the secular media, not from the Bible. They get their beliefs about it from the media, not from the Bible. That's not good news. Because the starting point for our understanding of all of history is the Bible. That's our context, and that's our understanding. So the purpose of this series is to bring us back to Scripture and to help us understand what's happening in our world in the context of God's history in the Bible. So this morning, we're going to pick up with the story of Abraham and Sarah. I want to remind you where we left off last week. We looked simply at Genesis chapter 12 and the call of Abraham to be the father of God's people. God promised him. And th this passage, this statement, is called the covenant. It's a covenant that God made with Abraham, a promise God made with Abraham, uh, that Abraham would have a land, which is the land of Canaan. In the Old Testament, became Judea and Galilee. It's what we call Palestine today. That land was given to Abraham and his descendants. That's their place. That's their land. Uh, then God made them a people. They are the people of God. And then God made them a promise. And that promise was they would be a blessing to all nations. They would be a great nation, meaning very significant, and a blessing to all nations, which is a prophetic statement about the Messiah, Christ himself, coming through the lineage of Abraham. 
Now, a little bit later in chapter 12, Abraham, Sarah, their family, and their entourage, their household, their servants, arrive in Canaan. And when they arrive in Canaan, God confirms his promise. He repeats the promise, almost verbatim, and even expands it a little bit, but he confirms the promise that Abraham's descendants would be the people of God, and this land would be their land, their heritage for them. They would be God's people. And God's promise is that the people of God would influence all nations, and eventually Christ himself would come through the people of God, Israel, the Jews. Now, where we're going to pick up this morning, we're going to read uh, a few blocks of Scripture. Uh, we're not going to read everything. The Bible has a lot to say about Abraham and Sarah and, and what happened with them and the promise that was fulfilled through them, even into the New Testament. But we're going to return to the book of Genesis and we're going to read uh, a few big blocks of Scripture. So straighten up, wake up, buckle up, get ready. We're going to read some blocks of Scripture. And along the way, I'm going to make a few comments as we go. And then we're going to draw some truths, some basic truths out of Scripture that are universally true of you and me personally and of all people geopolitically. These are universal truths that will apply from the story. Now, also, I want to mention one thing as we go along. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story of Abraham and Sarah, uh, you'll notice at first they're referred to as Abram and Sarai. Uh, it's the same people. God changes their names along the way. So just for the sake of consistency, I'm going to refer to them as Abraham and Sarah throughout this this story and this study, but we're talking about the same people. When you see a different name in your scripture, or you see the scripture on the screen, it's a different name, same people. Uh, we do not look into the part where God changes their name, uh, but he does it for a good reason, and he does it for posterity, and it's so, so often the case, God names people based on their future, their hope, and their character, and what he has for them. So, we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 15, this morning, Genesis chapter 15. If you have your Bible, turn there with me. But I need to give you just a little bit of heads up before we start reading. Time has passed. And as time has passed, Abraham and Sarah are getting older. And as time has passed, and as they're getting older, and as the promise of God is before them, and God has confirmed that promise to make them a great nation, they have a problem. They don't have any children. And to be a great nation, not only do Abraham and Sarah need a child, they need a male child to carry on their name, to, uh, to uh, be the father of this nation. But, but they don't have a child. It turns out Sarah can't conceive, at least not up to this point. So when chapter 15 opens, Abraham pitches an idea to God. The context of the idea is servanthood in the ancient world. And in the text we're going to read, we're going to read about servants. The word translated slave can be translated servant because it was a servant with obligation is what it was. And yet those servants in the household were frequently considered part of that household. So Abraham pitches an idea to God. Abraham is very confused. We've come all this way. We've not had a child. How is it that you're going to fulfill this promise? Maybe I should help. Could it be, God, could it be that Eleazar in my household, a household servant, he has a son who is by default part of my family. Maybe he could be the one. Maybe he could be the child of promise. So remember that Abraham has pitched that idea to God. And we pick up in chapter 15 in verse 4. 
Now the word of the Lord came to him, that is Abraham, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took Abraham outside and he said, look at the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Verse 6. Now verse 6 is very, very important in the story of Abraham and the story of Christianity. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now I want you to pause there just a minute. What that verse is saying is Abraham brought his doubt to God. God confirmed his promise and by faith, by faith, Abraham trusted God's promise for his future. And God, as we read it, credited that to him as righteousness. That's a good old-fashioned Old Testament way of saying Abraham was saved by faith. His faith in God, God considered making him righteous before God. The law of Moses hadn't even come into play yet. This statement and this teaching about Abraham will be threaded throughout the Bible and in the New Testament it is picked up for the reason and explained to be the reason that Christians are in the spiritual lineage of Abraham. We trust Christ by faith and by faith Christ's righteousness is credited to us as our righteousness. So that's what happened to Abraham. Verse 7. God adds to this, by the way, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give this land to you to possess. In other words, Abraham, same God, same promise, same place. Nothing's changed. Now look at Genesis chapter 16 and verse 1. Abraham's wife, Sarah, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarah said to Abram, or Abraham, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave, perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So Abraham's wife Sarah took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband. Underline, if you're using your own Bible, underline the word Egyptian, Egyptian slave. To her husband Abraham as a wife for him. This happened after Abraham had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. So they are 10 years down the road from the entry into the promised land. Verse 4, he slept with Hagar and she became pregnant and when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress, that is Sarah, became contemptible, contemptible to her. Then Sarah said to Abraham, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abraham replied to Sarah, here your slave is in your power, do whatever you want with her. Then Sarah mistreated her so much that she, that is Hagar, ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and, and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will settle near all his relatives. Verse 16. Verse 16. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. 86 years old. Now move over to Genesis chapter 17. 
Genesis chapter 17. The conversation has continued. God has changed their names to reflect their hope and their future and their character. And chapter 17, verse 17 says, Abraham fell face down. Then he laughed. He said to himself, can a child be born to a 100-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. Now let's pause there again. Notice how time has passed. Previously 86 years old, now he's 100 years old. 14 years have passed. Sarah is 90. That means Ishmael is 14 years old. He's a teenager. And Abraham looks to him and says to God, if only he were acceptable to you. God, I'm getting so old, this is becoming laughable that I would have an heir born by Sarah. Verse 19, but God said, no. <laughs> you like that? He'll be accepted. I said, no. Your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and, and multiply him greatly. He will father 12 tribal leaders and I will make them into a, a great nation. But I will confirm my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. When he finished talking with him, God withdrew from Abraham. 100 years old, 90 years old, Ishmael's 14 years old. Then we jump all the way to chapter 21 and verse 8. Chapter 21 and verse 8. The child grew and was weaned, that is Isaac, and Abraham held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son, that is Ishmael, mocking. It's the one that Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham. Uh, so she said to Abraham, drive out the slave with her son, for the son of the slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. This was very distressing to Abraham because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her, because her offspring will be traced through Isaac. And I will also make a nation of the slave's son, because he is your offspring. Early in the morning, Abraham got up, took bread uh, and a water skin, put them on Hagar's shoulders, and sent her and the boy away. A lot of time has passed. This family has been in turmoil, all hinging on the fact that they have tried to do God's will their way. That's what that's about. And now there are consequences, consequences for that. So we're going to look at three truths that arise out of this story, this story of conflict, this story of consequences, doubt and disobedience that comes along and how God, out of that, still God is faithful. Still God works through history. Still God is bringing about his perfect plan and his perfect will. In this, always remember that God's promises are irrevocable because God's promises are based on his character, not your circumstances and not world circumstances. God's promises are based on his character, and God does not. In fact, the Bible says God cannot lie. There is no uh, uh, falsehood in the character of God. So every promise God makes, God will bring to fruition. What he asks of us is faith in his character. Even if the promise is baffling, even if sometimes we, we go, what in the world, how could that possibly happen? 
we're not believing in the promise, we're believing in the God of the promise, the one who his character is, is absolute, trustworthy, faithful in every way. So remember that God's promises are irrevocable. He will bring about what he promised he will do. But also remember that God lets us live the consequences of our disobedience. It's just a fact of scripture and it's a fact of life. It doesn't mean God doesn't forgive you because as we'll see, indeed he does, God forgives us. But that doesn't mean God erases the consequences. And some of us in this room and at home know exactly what that's talking about. Uh, your past is still there. The consequences of your past may still be there. But remember, you're trusting the character of God. When God tells you he will cleanse you, he will forgive you, he has a future and a hope for you, that rests in him, not you, not your circumstances, not what people say about you, not what happened in the past. That rests in him. The consequences may still be there, but God is still God and always will be. Let's drill a little deeper. I want to draw from this story Three truths, apply them to us personally, and we'll see how they apply geopolitically as well. The first truth is that doubt may lead to disobedience. Not always, but sometimes. Doubt may lead to disobedience. Here's what I mean. You notice Abraham fostered the same idea that Sarah eventually applies, right? Abraham... The basic idea was, okay, I've got, a, I've got a servant in the house. I've got a slave. Here's his family. They're part of the family. So God, can't you just use his son? Let his son be the heir. And I think Abraham had in the back of his mind, I'm getting pretty old. I may not even see this. I know I live to see this come about. Sarah can't uh, have children. So God, we, we, she can't conceive. So we need to know, know what to do here. And here's a good idea. And what Abraham did right was bringing it to God. Abraham has doubts. He does. He has doubts. He's struggling with this. The years are passing. We're getting older. God keeps confirming this promise. But it's not happening. So let's help God out a little bit. But he brings his doubt to God. And when God confirms his promise, very simply put, Abraham trusts God. He trusts him. He doesn't take action on his doubt. He simply trusts God. Fast forward to Sarah. Sarah has almost precisely the same idea. And for reasons the Bible doesn't explain, Abraham, maybe forgetting about the conversation he just had with God, is complicit in this idea. Notice what Sarah does not do. She does not take her doubt to God. She just acts on it. So for Abraham, his doubt does not lead to disobedience yet. It does when he's complicit in Sarah's idea, but not yet. Instead, his doubt, when he takes it to God, his faith is bolstered and God confirms that faith and then pronounces again, I am the same God. I am your God. Good for you bringing this to me. But when Sarah does it, she takes action. She decides she is going to get God's will underway. 
and Abraham is complicit in it. Her doubt leads to disobedience. And disobedience is always sin. Always. Whenever we try to do God's will our way, that's disobedience. It's just that simple. Might look like a good idea. God, surely God will like me doing this. He wants this to happen. Let's do this instead. God will be good with that. It sure, sure looks spiritual. Usually what we're actually doing is trying to get out of God's will. We're trying to get away from God, what God really wants. Here's the reason why. Uh, this weekend, Dr. Henry Blackaby passed away. Many of you remember uh, Dr. Blackaby's wonderful study, Experiencing God, was the name of it, subtitled Knowing and Doing the Will of God. Uh, it exploded, for, especially for Southern Baptists, but all evangelical Bible-believing Christians. Uh, he's a great Bible teacher, now experiencing God as an entire ministry spread throughout the world. Dr. Blackaby passed away this weekend, went home to be with his Lord. Uh, and, and if you've studied experiencing God, uh, you know that it's founded on seven principles, or what he calls the seven realities of experiencing God. We're not going to walk through all, through the, all, all seven of them, uh, but I want to mention the last few. Uh, uh, the seven realities of experiencing God. Uh, number five is, whenever God calls you to join him in what he's doing, you will go through a crisis of faith, or as we're calling it, doubt. You'll go through that moment where you go, now, wait a minute. Is this what God wants me to do? I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I have enough money. I don't know if I can make the move. I don't know if I know enough stuff. I don't think I know the Bible well enough. Is this what God wants me to do? Uh, as Blackaby puts it, that's your crisis of faith. And when you come out of that crisis of faith and you decide to believe God, reality number six is you will have to make adjustments to follow God. Another way to put it, as Blackaby says, is it's impossible to stay where you are and go with God at the same time. It's impossible. And yet, that's fully and completely what most Christians opt to do, or at least believe they can do. I will stay right here. I'll keep doing what's comfortable for me. I won't change anything, and I will do God's will my way, and somehow God will bless that. When we do that, you know what happens? We never find out what it was God wanted to bless, what it, where it was God wanted to take us, what it was God wanted us to trust him for that we couldn't get our minds around. The seventh reality of experiencing God is that in our obedience, we get to experience God working through us in a brand new way. God always knows what comes next. He's just asking you to join him. But the default reaction of most Christians is, I'll do God's will my way and not change anything. We talk ourselves out of all kinds of stuff. We try to help God along our way doing all kinds of stuff. Never forget, the only way to do God's will is God's way. That's the only way to be obedient. Anytime you do God's will your way, you're being disobedient. Doubt may lead to disobedience, but it doesn't have to. Bring it to God. Ask him to help you. Ask him to confirm what it is he wants you to do, what's happening next, and trust your God. He knows what he's doing. Secondly, second truth, disobedience always produces consequences. Always. And frequently God will let us live with those consequences. 
Some of you are right now. You're still living with those past consequences. You know what I'm talking about. You're faithful to God now. You have a hopeful future. But God doesn't come in and scrub away all the consequences in your life. He does scrub away the sin in your life. He forgives that sin by the blood of Christ when you repent and ask him. But the consequences sometimes, not so much. doesn't change. And disobedience always produces consequences of some kind. In this story, Ishmael is the actual consequence of the disobedience. Now, what I don't want you to hear me say is that everything happening in the Middle East is Abraham and Sarah's fault. Blame them. No, that's not. That's not. And, and, I'll, and we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, everybody makes their choices. The descendants of Abraham in, in both sides with both women made their choices over the years. And that's what we're working with now. But the consequence of this story and this union uh, of Sarah pushing to do things her way, the consequence is Ishmael. And the Bible tells us four specific things about Ishmael very clearly. First of all, he was never intended to be the heir to God's people and to Abraham's promise. Ishmael was never intended to be the heir to the covenant God gave Abraham. It's never been that way. His people are not the heirs to the promise. The second thing it tells us, however, is that God is merciful and gracious and makes a different promise. Although it sounds similar, it's a different promise to Ishmael and his descendants. He will have 12 sons, and they will be the fathers of, of people as well, in the land as well. But then it also tells us there's a prophetic note, a prophetic note in chapter 16 and in Verse 12, as we read it, this is what the Bible says. This man, that is Ishmael, will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all of his relatives. In other words, the descendants of Ishmael will be a violent people. That's their heritage, and that's a prophetic statement. As the bloodline of Ishmael grows and cuts across the Middle East over heritage and generations, their legacy will be a legacy of violence. And the last thing the Bible tells us in chapter 25 of Genesis and in Ezekiel chapter 21, that the people of Ishmael are the Arab people. Uh, chapter 25, there's a brief statement that wraps up the life of Ishmael. We're, we're told who his 12 sons were and that he lived 137 years. And we're told that one of those sons is Kadar. Then in Ezekiel chapter 21, we're told that Kadar represents the Arab people in the shipping industry at that time. And we've already learned that he is of Egyptian descent. So it's not hard to see that Ishmael was the forefather of the Arab people that encircle, remember he will settle near his people, that encircle Israel. They don't have to go to war with Israel. But prophetically, they are a violent, warring people. And in fact, gave birth to a violent religion called Islam. In its very nature, we'll look at Islam in this series, in its very nature, Islam is born of violence. It's designed for violence. 
not every Arab person is Muslim, and not every Muslim is Arab, and you know this, and, and, but remember the beauty of the gospel is anyone of any ethnicity, race, birthplace in the world can come to Christ. Anyone can. That's why the gospel is so wonderful. That's why it's good news. Disobedience always produces consequences. And we see this in our own lives and we see it in the geopolitical situation. This is why what's happening is happening. It's the consequences of these decisions that took place so long ago. So the question is, what about you? You're, you're dealing with consequences of your prior decisions. So make sure you brought that to Christ. Make sure that you were cleansed of any sin of unrighteousness. Confess that sin to him. Trust your God to cleanse you. Trust your God to give you a future and to hope. Trust that your God has a plan for your life. And know that he can use any past circumstance of your life for his greater good, for his greater purposes. That's what he can do. And that brings us to the third truth. God is always faithful to his promises. Always faithful to his promises. Just drawing a circle here, because we keep saying this over and over at the front end, now again at the, at the close, but God is always faithful to his promises. He's been faithful to Abraham through Isaac with the covenant promise, and Jesus Christ came through Israel, came through the Jews. God is faithful to his promises. So what about Ishmael's people? It sounded like the promise to Ishmael was very similar to that of Isaac. But as we've already pointed out, and as God points out three times in the text we read, Ishmael is not the child of the promise. That is not the bloodline of the covenant. Isaac is the child of promise. Isaac is the bloodline of the covenant. And yet, by his grace and his mercy, God makes a promise to Ishmael. See, again, God permits consequences. But again, God provides mercy. And God can take even the worst of circumstances and turn it for his good, to do good things. But the problem with Ishmael's descendants is they took the potential of that promise and they turned it into evil. Uh, to, to have a comparison, think about Judas. Jesus called Judas just like the other 11. Judas had the same potential, the same opportunity. Judas made a choice to betray Christ. The descendants of Ishmael have made a choice to betray the people of God and to turn against them in this world. The good news for you and me is we can know that God is always faithful to his promises. And the promise that you need to make sure you tuck away and take home is that God has said to you, confess your sin, and he is always faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sin. Always. Always faithful and righteous. Tonight's the Super Bowl. I know, you're excited. To listen to the media, you'd think there's actually three teams playing. Wouldn't you? The Chiefs, the 49ers, and the Swifts. <laughs> Remember the purpose of the game, right? 
people who watch the game tonight, eh, I don't really care if Taylor Swift's there or not, to be honest with you. And I certainly don't care where she lands her plane. I just care about the game. I want to see the game. Focus on what matters most. Focus on what matters most. So, so remember these things. First thing to remember is God's promises are based on his character, not on you. Not on what you've done, not on your current circumstances, not on what you're doing now. His promises are based on him. But second, always remember that you've got to do God's will God's way. And sometimes that means you've got to wait. And while you're waiting, take your doubt to him. Take your concerns to your God. Go to him in faith. Believe him for who he is and for what he said. And you'll hear him once again. Confirm those promises. The promise that he loves you. The promise that Christ died for you. The promise that he has a future and a hope for you. The promise that he knows your past, but he forgives you. And on and on the promises go. He's always faithful to his promises, but you've got to do God's will, God's way. And you've got to remember, God doesn't erase the consequences of what's happened to the past, especially your sin, but he does forgive your sin and cleanse you of unrighteousness. And last, at any time, anywhere, you can always come to Christ. Always. You know your God loves you that much. Your God loves you that much. How do I know that? In the book of Hebrews, Abraham and Sarah's story is summarized. And they are included as two of the great people of faith who believed God collectively. They believed God for what they could not see. Now, wait a minute. Didn't we just read that they messed up? Yeah. But aren't you glad to know God's much bigger than that? And aren't you glad to know that God's promises are irrevocable? Unless you turn your back on him, God's not going to turn his back on you. He's not walking away. So you can trust him today. You can always come to Christ in faith. So let me ask you that. What burdens you? What, what concerns you? What weighs you down? What sin of the past are you concerned God will not forgive? What sin of yesterday are you concerned God will not forgive? What what is it you want to confess to him but you've been holding back? What is it about the future that you're afraid of? What is it that you're uncertain about? What is it that God is calling you to do but you're saying, isn't there another way to do that? <laughs> and God just keeps repeating himself. Trust me. Trust me. Whatever it is, your God loves you. And you can trust him today. So believers in Christ right here, right at home, trust him today. Bow to him. Turn your doubt over to him. Turn your struggle over to him. Confess your sins and, and let him know you want to start over today. And if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, do that today. It's really very simple. In fact, God's done all the heavy lifting for you. He sent his son Jesus to the cross for you. God raised him from the grave. So when you cry out in your heart in faith, when you confess to God that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and ask Christ to save you, repent of your sins, and trust Christ as your Savior. Wow, he'll do it when you do that in faith. I'm going to pray for us, then we're going to have a time of response, and I want to invite you to respond to the Lord at that time. Heavenly Father, God, you know our hearts, you know our doubts, you know our struggles. 
You know the consequences of our sin. You know, God, what's going on in our lives right now. God, how I pray you do a work in us. There's some in this room, maybe some at home, Father. You've been speaking to our hearts. We need to bring that doubt to you. We need to bring that confusion to you. We need to ask your forgiveness for the consequences that our choices caused and ask you, God, to cleanse us and show us the way forward. We need to trust you again today. Father, maybe one in this room or more, maybe someone at home needs to trust Christ as their Savior today. And I pray today would be the day, God, in their hearts of faith, they would cry out to Christ to forgive them of their sins, cleanse them, and fill them with the Spirit. So, Father, I pray today as we seek to respond to Christ, God, that you'd be at work in this place and, and everyone watching at home, God, you'd be at work in our hearts as well. That God, we would respond to Christ just as you're calling us to do today. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray.